from Kurtco Media. Welcome to Medicine, We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. And, of course, my co-host, the triple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, and critical care, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. Thank you, Bill. I'm honored to be here always. Tonight, we have the rarefied thrill of interviewing truly a giant in the field of knee surgery. This gentleman is world-renowned in the field of orthopedics and has received a multitude of academic and societal accolades. Co-chair of Cedars-Sinai Curlin Job Institute and a co-director of orthopedic surgery. He is consultant for Major League Baseball and the United States Olympic team. He is associate medical officer of Major League Soccer and the chief medical officer of the LA Galaxy. Not only is he an icon in his chosen specialty, but he's a veritable renaissance man in the field of medicine, being able to speak knowledgeably about topics as far-reaching as longevity and mountain climbing. And frankly... I'm a skier, and he performed surgery on my right knee six weeks ago, and I walked up three flights of stairs today. It is my esteemed pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Bert Mendelbaum. Welcome. Steve, Bill, it's a pleasure to be here with you and have some fun discussions about some real issues in medicine. Well, before we begin, Doc, what are you doing swimming with all these sharks? You know, people ask me that question all the time. You know, what is my interest in sharks? Is it a... Is it a death wish or death wish or is it some type of uh, it's like jumping out of airplanes and, and the answer is that I developed an interest when I was a young teenage boy growing up on Long Island we happened to be around beaches and oceans and there there were the fish and the whole ecosystem and I was fascinated with sharks everything and in fact Peter Benchley wrote a book that we all know as Jaws it was intriguing me at the time of 12 years old, sharks were really on my mind. And so you're the only one in the country that actually watched that or read that and chose to then go in the water. Exactly. I found interest in it and found that the appeal to these sharks was as really apex predators of the ecosystem are really organisms that are really important to our environment on every level. At least at this moment, do you feel that your training in swimming with the sharks has prepared you for the economic and political milieu of healthcare? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I think a lot of the sharks, the milieu of healthcare is a little different type of environment, of course. But I think learning to respect the environment and the ecosystem of our world is very important on every level. And health being, for us humans, a very important part of our lives is, is the segue. And, and, and before we, we really dive into the... Dive no in. pun intended. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd like to ask the two of you to address the responsibility that parents have regarding our children's team sport journey through school years. One of your published pieces, Dr. Mendelbaum, is focusing on parents and student athletes exhibiting balance and control. Can you be a little more specific? It's where the life of sport intersects the sport of life. And there's no other greater place than with our children because we ask everybody, what is it about sports that's important for them to do? 
What are the benefits? Why do we want to see them become young volleyball players as young girls? What is it about that young soccer player, football player, sees in sport? What are the benefits and what are the great things for their lives? And I think that starts that discussion about that balance. Well, sometimes I think we're trying to help them achieve what we weren't able to achieve as young children ourselves. And also to teach them lessons that are important for them to learn and live in the sport of life. And that's where sports comes in. You know, people ask the question, what do we human beings have an interest in sports? Where does this come from? Where is this intersection? And it turns out that as we went from Homo erectus two million years ago to Homo sapiens 100,000 years ago in the Paleolithic period coming to an end, and we became predators, not prey, the answer was it really was in our hunting capabilities. The athleticism of the hunt were the athletes in us. And that's what we're trying to see go forward in our children. So when it starts with that, as survivors of the fittest, that's where this interest us as parents in seeing our kids do well in sports comes. I'd like to discuss the young people who, in fact, are athletic and are on team sports and exhibit some balance and control along with their parents. And Bert, a couple of years ago, you published a piece discussing at the beginning of the school year, you get a parade of students through your office that have overused muscles that are out of condition. But you also mentioned a concern that there's a lot of kids you don't see and you're worried about them as well. What did you mean by that? Well, what happens, and again, this time of year... Preparation for school and club sports in the fall really requires the preparation of mentality, the preparation of physicality, and and doing the type of exercises that your son's coach gave them before the summer started so they would be prepared when they entered school. Mm, They forgot about most of that, though. They forgot about most of that. And so all of a sudden they're thrown into a practice, and they end up with some type of injury because they were ill-prepared. So what I was really talking about were the things that they were being non-compliant about, that those lessons would have to be learned the hard way. And instead of learning and following that spiral book with all the exercises and progressions, they forgot that. And then they get injured, they end up in the orthopedic surgeon's office. Or what about the kids that they are injured, but they don't admit it? Well, that's a different situation. You know, again, that's part of that bipolarity where you have the kids who win at all costs, no pain, no gain. doesn't really work very well for a young adolescent population because we have to learn that there are boundaries. And these boundaries are set by the physicality. And if they don't follow those, they fall into the overuse injury spectrum. And they, again, end up in the orthopedic surgeon's office. And does, does the, the child that enters team sports early in their life and perhaps runs eight years of football through their high school and college career, do they end up paying the price when they get older? Do they end up seeing you for more significant surgeries and treatments? Bill, there was a great study from Johns Hopkins that looked at medical students and found that if you happened to play high school football and got injured, you had a three times greater likelihood of having osteoarthritis later in life. So the answer is yes. And that's on the good side that you learn these great lessons, the benefits of the sport. You become physically better, physiologically better. Your lipids, your cholesterol is better. Your blood pressure is better. On the downside is you're at a greater risk for osteoarthritis in your 40s, your 50s, and 60s. How do we manage the parents that are perhaps more 
excited about their kids' athletic prowess than they should be and end up with their children later in life paying the price. As leaders within our respective communities have to approach these from an academic perspective and understand the science, but also have to understand how to be leaders and motivate and inspire our parents and our kids to understand how to do this well. And that's one of the issues that I really focus on, is how to motivate and inspire kids and parents how to understand these concepts so they could really embellish these topics in, with respect to their life. When we're talking about children and we're talking about these very difficult issues, I want to take us to kind of a dangerous area. I'm very pleased to see you are a very philosophical individual with very high moral standards. What is your take on American football amongst especially our youth and the risk of post-concussive injury, both acutely and more importantly, chronically with post-concussive dementia? Do you subject your child to that risk so that they can enjoy the fruits of the labor of high school football and, and beyond? This, Steve and Bill, is, is a tough issue. And, and you're speaking to someone who played high school and two years of college football. And I, your cognitive skills are still quite good. So they're we're very almost impressed. there, I think. I really think that we have a responsibility to our kids on every level, on the football fields, on the soccer fields, in the classrooms, especially with respect to gun control. That the health of our children should be number one. It should be tantamount to everything we do as professionals. But with respect to football players, we have to understand the game. There's a way to do it. The coach at Dartmouth University has taken a whole new protocol and policy within the Ivy League to tackling and minimize the number of head injuries, at least in the Ivy League football league. And this is an important step. We don't need to abolish the game or forbid our kids from playing the game. We just need to make it safer. And there's so many ways we can do that. You know, there have been people who have suggested that we lose the helmets and the padding because the existence of those is giving people too much energy toward their hits. And as a result, they actually damage themselves and each other when they don't expect that they are. And I guess my question to you is, how do you feel about that? The idea that we get back to kind of the rugby way and have people, when they hit somebody, it hurts. You know, when I play football, the game was about, it was played between the hash marks it was played in such a way that when you hit someone, it was hit them in the numbers. It wasn't about using your head on every contact. And the helmets at that time were anything but good at dealing with stress impact, as they are now. And you don't go back to the leather helmets thing, No, do you? absolutely no. not. Okay. <laughs> but at those times, certainly in the 70s, these were ones where the helmets were not of the great stress-absorbing capability. But the game was different. Tackles were different. If you look at football from 2000 on, the use of the head as, as a weapon is really where it comes down to in the chronic repetitive head injuries, even the sub let alone what that does to your neck. Let alone what it does to your neck going forward. And I think probably that ship has sailed anyway, right? You're not going to dial back the viciousness of the tackle now that you don't have a helmet. From my perspective looking at it, the safest is going to be if you wind up having flag football. But somehow, I don't think that's going to have the same draw in the NFL if everybody switches to flag football. What I have learned is that we need to respect the football athlete. And I'm not sure that in the NCAA, for example that we really respect the football athlete. In that, if that were the most important thing, we think about how imperative it is that they graduate. 
What about the philosophy that, well, now they're multimillionaires, so what's the importance of college? We're talking about football here. Rarely are there no-cut contracts like we see in baseball and basketball. So football is a different thing with respect to contracts. So if you get injured one year to the next and you lose a half a step and you go from 4-6 to 4-7, then the next player comes in the next year and then you're relegated back to your hometown without a college degree, with pain and other issues to deal with, let alone the possibility of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. What causes that? And actually, biologically, is that a synapse issue? Is that the electricity in your brain isn't following the right track? It's basically the formation of these bodies that are part of scar formation that go on and replace the gray and the white matter in such a way that the brain can function cognitively. The brain is about intellect, cognitive, emotional, orientation, judgment, attention span. And what happens when these bodies collect in the brain, they affect all those functions. And when that happens, that's when we call it encephalopathy. Oh, boy. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in about 15 seconds. I was introduced to Stefano Ricci decades ago, and I was enamored of his creations then and just as impressed now. Stefano Ricci is about style that matters because it lasts the design, the craftsmanship, everything about everything he does is made to endure. Thank you for bearing with us and welcome back. This is medicine. We're still practicing. Bert, back in January of 16, you published a piece talking about grafts, ACL repairs. What's unique about the way you handle ACL reconstruction for professional athletes compared to maybe a 50-year-old weekend warrior? Tell us about that. Well, injury to the anterior cruciate ligament, or the ACL, is becoming a chronic problem in our society. About 200,000 ACL injuries in the U.S. in a given year. And they occur lots in our young children, four times more commonly in young female athletes than young boys. No kidding. No kidding. And they occur in these young girls because of a variety of variables. Is it a matter of preparation and training and strengthening before they engage? And why would women be, girls be more vulnerable than the boys? So first we have to understand how this injury occurs. And the way we have done that is we studied hundreds of videotapes and we found that these young girls land and jump in such a way that they land with their femurs, their leg bone internally rotated, and it's what we call dynamic valgus. As the knee turns in, the ACL gets decapitated in this non-contact ACL mechanism. Is this a dynamics because of the the pelvic difference between men and women? Not necessarily. It's not a pelvic issue. It's a hip control, neuromuscular control issue by putting the femur in the appropriate position in relationship to the pelvis that is really critical to why the ACL becomes injured. So that means that uh, a girl being successful in a sport actually has to work harder than a boy. Yes. And as a consequence, in 1999, we developed a program that is called the PEP program, P-E-P, Prevent Injury Enhanced Performance, which was to bring to the attention of people in the sporting world how these injuries occur. So we videotaped and show this dynamic valgus, and then we developed this program, five exercises, how to prevent this. And we found that we could reduce ACL injuries by, in two studies, between 72% and 88%. 
What's the penetration of this protocol now in the academic world and in professional sports? The question you ask is, what's the penetration? More importantly, is what's the compliance? Because prevention is a very hard concept. I'm a surgeon, and we've been able to research the science of how these injuries occur. But what I have learned within prevention and public health, it's very difficult to get a society to be compliant in these basic issues. So let's dive in a little more to the professional athletes that you handle. Can you tell us, it seems like the professional athlete, you hear about them having a catastrophic injury, and three weeks later, they're back on the field much faster than the rest of us would ever be able to handle. How's that going? Well, first off, that's not really true. Most professional athletes these days, after a catastrophic injury, won't be back immediately. You know, for example, we followed what happened with Kevin Durant in the NBA Finals. Regardless of what the issues were, and I'm not commenting about the right or the wrong, but look how everybody commented about, well, he shouldn't have played. It was too early. Who told him to play? But that's an example of someone who comes back so fast, it kind of makes our heads spin. Well, on one level, it matters about the details. It wasn't really the fact that he came back too fast. It was five or six weeks after his injury. And if if on face his injury was a medial gastroc strain, which it was, then it's perfectly appropriate. But obviously there was some specificity in this situation that may have been different. It is also, this is his vocation. This is something that is his professional responsibility. If as a professional you have a cold, to take an extreme example, you're probably going to still go to work that day when maybe somebody who is not actually working or maybe a student in school can take that day off. You're going to push yourself further than you otherwise should, perhaps, just because you need to show up to work each day. Well, it is their livelihood. Well, it is their livelihood, but it's also a certain extent of professional responsibility to the corporation and to the team. Would you not expect them to perhaps push themselves a little further, not hopefully to the point of permanent injury and disability, but maybe they're going to come back out on the court, on the field a little sooner if they can get away with it, so to speak, for the benefit, the greater good of the team and the tournament. But do they pay the price later, Burton? Well, as I said, there's no question that high school collegiate and professional athletes have higher incidences of osteoarthritis later in life. There's no question about that. In soccer, uh, as an example, about a third retired with the diagnosis of osteoarthritis. In the professional athlete, after they have a catastrophic injury, is there anything that you can tell us about their rehab, their physical therapy, the, what they go through in order to come back? Is it inhuman? Is it something we can do? Or is it something really unique to someone who frankly, makes their livelihood in sport. You know, I, I talk a lot about this, and I love the concept of mend it like Beckham. These <laughs> professional athletes have an alpha approach to everything. is like none other. That they could see the path. They know who their team is. They know the complexities and the specificity of their team, who they need to surround themselves with, how they need to motivate and inspire themselves, how they need to break down to every step and every progression back till they get to their championship. And that's why we call it Mend It Like Beckham. Knowing that an ounce of prevention is certainly the best, 
Are there certain activities that you would say that we should be really avoiding, both as the professional athlete and or the weekend warrior? In other words, should we not be running? Should we not be doing higher impact? Or is there a way in which we can engage in these activities and do so safely and still prevent injury to our knees? Our safety and health is predicated on what we eat, we drink, we think, and what we do. The complexities are based on basic concepts are we're only as strong as our weakest link. Meaning that running is important, maintaining fitness is important. We can't just think of diet and forget about the fact that our bodily positions when we run jump land or when we ski with bad bindings or we ski that last run of the day. We don't understand the basic tenets of preventive concepts. So it's details, details, and more details to do that right. So, but what's the consumer going to do? Because unless you can afford to have a trainer whenever you're running, how does our listener, the general public, how do I figure out what's the best ergonomics for me to carry out my activities? And if I don't have a specialist watching me, what is, is there a general rule or a general way that I can go about my, my exercise regimen that would be done so in a safe way in, in the best way to prevent an injury? Well, I think that, firstly, everybody should embark on some adventure that's important to them, whether it's a ski mount, whether it's hiking or snowshoeing or whatever that is, it should be part of our life because that's what gives humans happiness. But every one of those activities, you've got to prepare with a high level of specificity. We do this all the time. Patient comes, I want to start skiing. I want to run marathons. We have the L.A. Leggers in this town that teaches people to start running marathons. So each one of these activities we have to approach in a very comprehensive way. Bert, where is your specialty going? The great hope for technology taking us to a better place in your specialty. You know, this is an exciting, exciting time for innovation in all of our society when we look at computational data in the big cloud, being able to take apart resistors and and look at the ability to take big data sets and look side to side using machine learning, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. How about genetic mapping? And genetic mapping and being able to use the, the data cloud to do that, to look at the genomes. And we certainly have seen the tip of the iceberg with the ancestry and 23andMe and We're doing a study now looking at the genetics of ACL injury, and our findings are really interesting. So can you tell by looking at a genetic analysis and tell whether someone has a propensity toward an ACL injury or or weak knees? We're not 100% sure yet because it's a work in progress, but a study out of Poland looked at a group of people and just a collagen gene, collagen 1A1 versus collagen 3A1, a different incidence of ACL injury just by one different, what we call allele, which is a section of the gene. So it's a fascinating time in genomics to be able to look at that and also to look at the field of epigenomics, of how we turn on and off various genes by things that we do. For example... What we eat or how we exercise? Back to what we eat, drink, think, and do. You know, we know now that if you're exercising every day in an intense way, you're turning on and off 200 genes. And those genes affect your blood vessels, affects your brain, reduces your risk of Alzheimer's, reduces the risk of cancer. So those are the things that we call epigenomics. And simple things such as exercise are probably the most robust interventions we have. But is this nature or nurture relative to your ACL? Is it a genomic issue such that... 
even if you're not an athlete, even if you're somebody who doesn't exercise regularly, you will still have the propensity for an injury? Or are ACL injuries really predominantly still within the venue of your athlete? I think it's a complex equation where the genetics are the labyrinth or legacy that we bring into our life, but it's certainly modifiable in terms of risk factors by managing it accordingly, preventive strategies. In other words, if, if you have a hypercholesteremia and your cholesterol is over 400, doesn't mean you're going to die of heart disease once you find you take a large dose of Lipitor and you exercise every day. It's the same thing, that the genes are the genes, but we still could modify them. And the modifiability is the field of what we call epigenomics. And it's very exciting. And I think this is one of the great discoveries that we've had in the last 30 years. From my vantage point, from the, the medical side, you know, the adage is always for longevity, you have to choose your parents very carefully. Speaking on behalf of my ACL and also on my knee cartilage, is there an activity or a group of activities that would be in some way advantageous? Is there something I can do in a preventative fashion that we've identified, either from an exercise perspective, from a spiritual perspective, from a nutritional perspective? Is there anything definitive out there that we can say that we should be doing to protect my poor destined ACL and knee joint cartilage? Well, you should probably exercise intensely at least 400 minutes a week. I think our colleagues in cardiology have really pointed that out, again, from the epigenomic perspective. But those same benefits on the genes, those 10,000 genes that every time our heart beats, are also important in terms of our musculoskeletal system and our joints. That if we don't exercise, and again, if you do have a modicum of osteoarthritis, you've had previous ACL injury, maybe you spend less time running and more time cycling and hiking. You know, how do you feel about running? Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the knee structure? There's a law that I always love to use. It's called Cellier's Law, which is basically that bell curve. On one side of the curve, too little is not good and too much is not good. Right at that top of the curve is the sweet spot. So you need to find the sweet spot with respect to running. I think for people over 50, probably the optimal way to do it is to run maybe two miles three to four times a week and then to supplement it with a variety of other things, yoga, Pilates, swimming, biking, hiking, things like that. Would you advise people to exercise naturally, to run, to walk, to hike, as you, as you mentioned before? Uh, how do you feel about the machines at all of these fancy gyms? You know, one of the things in my book, The Wind Within, that I spent a lot of time researching in Africa I went to the Kalahari Desert, and I looked for this whole issue of the origin of sport. And there I found the Kosan Bushmen. And the Kosan Bushmen live today like their relatives from 100,000 years ago lived in the southern Kalahari Desert. And what they do every day is they basically hunt. And to prepare for the hunt, there's no breakfast. They wake up in the morning, they drink. They prepare themselves. I like the drink part. Oh, you mean did they just Not drink Scotch. water? They're drinking water, <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. And they prepare themselves their bows and arrows, and they're ready to go. And I joined them on this hunt, and off we went. And never did we exceed probably 12-minute miles in terms of the walk and the jog. And every time I found myself going faster, they would look at me and go like this, no, no. And what I've concluded from this is that man, as we know it today, 
is set up to basically a slow jogger. Not do too much with respect to running and not be the sprinter, but to be the slow walking, walk jog situation because that is our legacy. That's the way we've been set up to be that hunter. But not the marathon runner. Moderation in terms of distance as well. um, That's what I'm saying. The moderation because what we find when we look at this critically if we look at the cardiac enzymes and we look at the inflammatory, the coronary vessels for marathon runners, we find that the markers are really the negative ones. They've gone over the other side in this regard. So I think the sweet spot in answer to your question is really moderation when it comes to running and balance your activities. If you're that weekend warrior, you love yoga, go for it. Pilates, stretch, swim, tai chi, hike, do the combination of things. Find your adventure. That's where you want to be. And, and follow a path, navigate this path, as we all are, trying to figure the optimal existence, what I call the plus 10 existence. What, what do you mean by plus 10? Well, I'm very fortunate to have a, a dad who's almost 95 and a mom who is 93 and never been athletes ever. Mom's got a little heart disease. And what I've noted in the last seven years is that, in fact, they are just slowed by their joint disease and just being old, being in their 90s. And they're still healthy, no big diseases, but they can't do much because they haven't exercised very much. So I think that what we should think of and we plan our lives and our mission and our life, what we want to do is we want to make plus 10. So those years between 85 and 95 are lived like they were lived between 60 and 70. That's what I call plus so 10. So you mean plus a good 10? Plus 10. You get good. It's a plus. Yeah. Plus 10. A good 10 years at a high quality where you could play tennis, where you could ski, where you could golf, where you could hike and do all the things we talked about. You are what you eat, drink, But you basically want people, even at that age, to exercise seriously for an hour a day. A hundred percent. In fact, I want people who could exercise into their 80s and 90s more than an hour. Every decade, you have to add 15 minutes. Bill, how much exercise did you get today? Remember the three sets of stairs I told you I walked up? Uh, That that was about it. Well, we're going to venture into another break here, Steve and Bert. If you'll give us just a minute, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about life, longevity, and whether sports help you live longer. We'll be right back. Sometimes the exceptional is not the biggest budget. Sometimes the exceptional is someone's ability to actually take their soul and print it on the screen for a moment. I want to learn everything that there is to know about the filmmaking process. I think part of art is hearing from the artists who create it. The number of different visions, the number of different qualifications that have to go into making any film is insurmountable. And hearing those stories can be just as exciting and insightful as the movies themselves. Certain movies or certain scores, certain actors, have shaped who I am as a person. I have such appreciation for the things that people produce and the work that goes into it. Whether it's the writer who came up with the story in general or how the filmmakers were able to take that from the page and put it onto screen and then from the actors themselves who were able to kind of bring that all to life. All of it is what I want to hear because it makes me love my favorite movies even more. I'm Scott Talal. If you love movies like I do, you're going to love Hollywood Unscripted. Wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome back. Bert, you send a lot of people home who have had 
surgical procedures. What, what do you do about pain management? Pain management is something we pay a lot of attention to, as you know. It's important for us to really reduce the amount of pain. We love the expression, no pain is your gain. And we, we like to do that because we can block the pain fibers in a preemptive way in the operating room just by blocking the pathways back to the spinal cord, which decreases the potential of pain postoperatively. Well, you did that for me. It, it gives you a couple of days of not even feeling your leg, which was a positive thing for me at the time. Exactly. And what happens, you bypass that significant pain period, and then the pain that everybody gets is really much less in amplitude. So there are many things for us as practitioners that we can do to reduce the acute pain, certainly from a surgical procedure. I think it's important as a surgeon that each of us understand that pain is something that is modulatable that we could discuss this with a patient, that we can make a difference, that we don't have to give them 30 pills when they're only going to require six. Uh, we don't have to give them morphine or Demerol or hydrocodone. We could reduce the type of opioid that we use that decreases the potential of addiction. What about, though, chronic pain? I know from the medical side, it wasn't too long ago where the government's edict was that pain should be the fifth vital sign. And we all were scrambling because the fear was that if we were not going to ask a patient about pain and pain management as often as we would do their respiratory rate and their temperature and their blood pressure and other vital signs, that there would be some ramifications and there would be a negative impact on our practice and possibly some punitive results due to neglect was to, that, to was that pharmaceutical lobbyists that no, created this, that situation for you? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think that this was people feeling that probably on some level, rightly so, that physicians were more attuned to dealing with medical illness and not the psychosocial aspects that patients were in, enduring, and pain was one of them. And we were wrong. We were wrong, really wrong at that time. So now we find ourselves in this opiate crisis and now the government is saying, physician, you're the problem, completely not owning up to the responsibility that was imposed upon physicians to make sure that you recognize patients' pain. Who, who and that was you that treat responsibility imposed by? Legislation. Your Congress, your Senate, who would say that physicians need to be doing this to put the physician into the crucible, in the crosshairs of administrative legislative bodies that say physicians must be doing this. But politicians don't know beans about medicine. Who put them in a position where they were putting that kind of pressure on the doctor? You did. You voted them in. And for some <laughs> reason, they have power. And just because they don't necessarily have the education to justify their perspective, their perspectives, however, have clout and unfortunately ramifications. So now I'm not saying that this is the entire cause of the problem, but it brings into direct relief the situation where physicians are historically placed in a double bind. You must address the pain. Okay, you've addressed the pain. Now you've overshot, doctor. How does a physician, and you, especially as an orthopedic specialist, deal with patients who have their chronic pain? And how do you mitigate the risk of opiate addiction at the same time uh, mitigating the patient's pain? Well, I think we have a responsibility on many levels, the, the first of which what we do on a daily basis with our patients. And I see it as a responsibility that I have to the patient to reduce their pain and the requirement. We know that 
anywhere between 6 and 10% of the people having knee replacement can get addicted from their medications associated with their knee replacement. So the first thing challenge that we have as doctors to understand that sequence of how pain is created and how we minimize and prevent pain that needs to be treated by lots of opioids. And then they could lead into those situations. And again, that's one side of this problem. I mean, this dragon has many different heads, one of which is the physician, and as Bill pointed out, the legislature and some of the lobbyists from the pharmaceutical companies at that point in time pushed on that in their advertising and marketing efforts were very much to instigate the use of opioids in a widespread basis. Today, we think differently. So we've got to think differently. We've got to cause less pain. We've got to think it through all the way through the whole algorithm. And we're not doing a good job. Uh, we see that in various states, such as New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, West Virginia, where opioid death rates are five to six times greater than here in California for reasons that really are complicated. Again, the different heads of the dragon. On one side, the issues of access to opioids. On the other, the despair aspects in these small towns and where they have high incidences of, of use abuse and death, which is something that we really need to focus upon. Bert, in some of your writings, you touch on artificial intelligence and 3D printing and robotics. Can you tell us a little about what's next? Well, I think I think this focus, uh, you mentioned robotics right now, and our field of joint replacement is very exciting. The last decade, a variety of robots, GPS robots, finding the precision and accuracy of putting in a knee replacement in such a way that it could be accurate to the half a millimeter, something we were unable to do in the past. To be able to use uh, specialized cobalt and other types of metallics to create prostheses that have a tremendous longevity that are perfectly inert and compatible with biological systems. The reason why orthopedic surgeons exist is to basically make the joints better that allow the heart and the cardiovascular system and brain to function. So the role that we have, the use of orthobiologics in a period of time from 50 to 100 will have a much greater role than we've ever seen before. Interesting. I guess I, I can't help but ask, how old is too old for a knee replacement or a hip replacement? Well, I think age is a number. And, you know, someone said today that there's someone alive today who will live to 150. Boy, I hope they have a good pension. It's probably one of those Bushmen you're talking about, though. I don't know who it's going to be, and perhaps they're right in saying so. But we talked about plus 10 concept that I just mentioned. But imagine that we're talking about plus 50. And how are we going to get from 100 to 150? What does that look like? Is it yet to be defined? Again, let's get back to the turn of the 20th century. Our average longevity was 40. In 1899, the longevity was 40. And at 120 or 130 years of age, what other systems of ours are going to fail that we need to figure out? Well, certainly our brains. You know, the World Health Organization has figured out that if we live... If our longevity marches to 90, up from 82, where it is in Monaco, that one of the biggest problems that we'll have is that our healthcare bill will be doubled because the custodial aspects of managing all these folks 
with Alzheimer's dementia will be the number one cost factor for us. So we have to figure out that. How do we minimize that? And I think that issue is coupled to the fact that now we have a society that's going to smoke a lot less. And if you look at the longevity countries, the top 10 longevity countries are fish-eating countries. Monaco, Spain, Italy, Japan, fish-eating countries. And again, the Mediterranean diet wins out in terms of all these issues. People constantly ask about vegan diets and you know, what's the optimal way to eat? And it turns out that we spent many years, two million years to be particular, being vegans, where we were smaller, our brains were smaller, and we, in fact, were, were prey. We weren't predators as we are today with bigger brains, bigger bones. So I'm not sure we're set up to be vegans going forward. I don't think it's enough to sustain us in optimal health. I think some balance. And the way I tell people is that you want to eat fish, eat plenty of vegetables. I tell people to have at least 10 of your 14 meals in fish and lots of vegetables, reducing your carbohydrates is the ideal diet. Well, Steve, you're going to be eating a lot of salmon because I think that's the only fish that you're willing to deal with. That's the only one I'm willing to deal with, without Uh, a doubt. Dr. Bert Mendelbaum, I'm really appreciative of your attendance here today. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Uh, of course, Dr. Tayback, thanks so much for hosting today's show. It's been truly a pleasure, really. Nice meeting you, Bert. Nice talking with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. If you're looking for Dr. Bert Mendelbaum, you can find him at the Cedar sinai Curlin job Institute in Santa Monica. Or at the firing range. Oh, I guess not. No, actually, <laughs> swimming with sharks. Tomorrow. <laughs> Once again, this is your host, Dr. Stephen Tabak, and this is Medicine. We're still practicing. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor. This episode of Medicine, We're Still Practicing, was hosted by Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Eric Dick. Recorded at Kurtco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music by Chris Porter. Today's guest was Dr. Bert Mendelbaum. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Kurtco Media. Media for your mind.